and you realize like it's pretty ephemeral and we're here for a very short time and now these people are like memories in my head just dancing around like fireflies at night, you know, and it's getting a little dimmer. It's melancholy, but it is also that sadness is part of what makes our lives very beautiful. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director James Gray tells a deeply personal coming-of-age story in his new drama, Armageddon Time. The film follows Paul, a Jewish-American sixth grader who finds himself learning about racism and privilege against the backdrop of 1980s Queens. In addition to Armageddon Time, Gray's other directorial credits include the feature films Ad Astra, The Lost City of Z, The Immigrant, We Own the Night, and an episode of the television series, The Red Road. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Gray spoke with director Matt Reeves about filming Armageddon Time. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. This is an honor for me. what are you talking People, about? He, by the way, he's like my best me. friend. This is absurd. That's what I'm saying. It's an honor for me because we've known each other for over 30 years. Yeah. And this movie, which I think is beautiful, um, it's a very interesting experience for me seeing the movie because not only do I love the movie, but I love you. And the film, you know, you've, you've, I would say that all of the films that you've made, and it's, I know it's your approach and it's... It's my approach, too, in a very different way, but always, as we talk about, the most important thing is to find a way to make a film personal. But this is, of all, and you may disagree, I don't think you will, though, of all the films you've made, it's, it's definitely personal. It's also the most autobiographical, yeah? Um, I love you, too. Hi. James um, Gray. So, so <laughs> uh, yeah, but what's weird, what Matt is not telling you, maybe he shouldn't, but I'm going to tell you, Matt has actually been to the house oh, yeah. that's in the movie, basically. Because yeah. we shot... Which is where you shot, right? We shot maybe 80 feet south. The house that you were in, the woman, would, the woman who bought the house from my dad in 2010, um, she would not let us in. I see. She, so we, you, wait, so you filmed not at the house, but next door right to the down, house right that down was the your, block. your parents' house. As you know, the, the, all the houses built 1946 literally right after the war. And they were all kind of cookie cut. You remember, they were kind of semi-attached Archie Bunker row houses in the neighborhood that at the time when I was growing up in the 70s, they were uh, exclusively WASP working class. Like I said, Archie Bunker, and I mean literally. Yeah. We, we shared our house with a guy who's looked, talked, acted exactly like Carol O'Connor. I mean, his name was Charlie, not Archie, big deal. And I remember he had a flagpole and he put it a little bit to his side. He wanted to know who you would show the, the street what a regular American was. You know, fought in a big one, WW2. He used to talk like this. And we were the lone Jewish family on the block. They wanted us out and made that pretty obvious, by the way. Now the neighborhood is uh, str- strangely and roughly divided between Orthodox Jews and uh, Asian, which I don't fully understand how that migration happened. But now... I do know that that neighborhood has some of the greatest food of all time, which was not the case growing up. And so, I have to say that that yeah. time when I did, first of all, we were, 
we were working on James's movie, The Yards, and you invited me for a Seder dinner. And I, your mother had, she passed away while, while we knew each other in college. Long and time so, ago. Long, long time prior to that. Um, had, had this Seder dinner with your father and extended family, your stepmother, your brother. It wasn't as warm, as wonderful as it was in the film. I do believe, I swear this is true, you did order dumplings. And that was, that was actually one of the things the, that, that was, that's my, my memory the, of that there, whole there's experience. There's no question but that that's true. My, my family always had a very excellent skill of putting all the cooking through the deflavorizer machine. <laughs> so uh, as a consequence, I had the number to Fan Fan Chinese Kitchen, and it was right above that putrid avocado green phone, just like there is in the movie. And I would pick it up and place a call bring me the dumplings. I did do that. Dumpling suckers. I mean, I was actually worse than that. I would berate my mother openly and all. I mean, I was a pretty terrible kid. And uh, I wanted to, I mean, that dinner is like, that's like every night in the house. They would always start with some measure of order. And then they would descend into a version of like seriousness. There'd be some mention of like invariably like Nazis or something. And I would, of course, be laughing at my brother doing something stupid or whatever. And then we would, you know, then it would become open disrespect, chaos, viciousness, and Chinese food. Now, I, my father let me do it, I'm convinced. And it's in the movie, you know, after he's like, no, 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 don't throw them away. I'll, I'll eat them. Because my father really also thought my mother's cooking was horrible. Did, couldn't say it, you know, but he would always eat it. So I think that's why he let that behavior slide. I have to say also that before I ever met your father, you used to do just as you did your father. Hello, like that as you do. Yep. And then I met your father and he does in fact talk or did in fact talk exactly like you. And after I watched the movie, Rafi, James's son, one of his sons came up to me and I was saying, oh my God, Jeremy was so much like, good morning. I think I was, when the good morning moment happened, we were watching the movie here. And I just, I think I laughed the loudest because it sounded just like you. And, and that was exactly what Rafi said. He said, that's my dad. That's my dad. But so there's, a, there's an element of you that I think lovingly sort of absorbed an aspect of your father. When I was, you're, you're an amazing mimic. But I, I guess one of the things I'm curious about, the film is so personal and having met and known a little bit your father, Jeremy, it's interesting because the way in which I know your father is from your stories about growing up, which are very evident here. Um, and then also just him during the times that I knew him where he was uh, sort of the lighter side that you see in the film as well. But Jeremy, um, who I think is wonderful in the movie, is so he so evokes an essence of your father that is so exactly right. Can, can you talk about the process it, yeah. of how? What did, like, did it, he meet your dad? Well, it's very creepy. My brother saw the film at the New York Film Festival. Uh, he, I was very scared about showing it to him before that. I, by the way, I'm very close with my brother now. We talk many times a week. He's a brilliant guy, incredibly funny. At the t this is quite accurate to my my relationship with him, though at the time, which was basically that he would beat me up. And, you know, parents are not interested, it was the old joke, parents are not interested in justice. They are interested in quiet. So my brother would, you know, he'd punch me. I'd say, oh, why did you do that? And he would say, because I felt like it. Anyway, that was my relationship with him. But now I get along with him really well. Anyway, he saw the film first time at the New York Film Festival. And he was freaked out. Hmm. Because he couldn't believe how it, it was. It's like, you know, 
in the late 70s on Broadway, there was this absurd show called Beatlemania where you had like... I, I loved Beatlemania. Yeah, well, so did I. But it was like, not the Beatles, the slogan went, but an incredible simulation. And it's sort of like watching the Beatlemania version of your life, you know, where it's not it's not 100%, but it's like 99.2%. You're like, wait, that's so weird. Is that real? And my my brother was uh, was really freaked out. My children were too. I mean, my children knew my father. My father died uh, two months into post on this while we were editing of COVID, of all things. And I was not estranged from him, as you know. We 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 talked and all that, and. I will confess that I have a measure of relief that I didn't have to show him the movie because it's not an altogether edifying portrait of the family, of me, of him. Uh, but I felt that it was important, obviously, to do it honestly, to not practice some, you know, self-aggrandizing thing. Or I, I don't even know exactly how I would have done that given the schmuck that I was and am. So um, anyway, to make a long story longer, what Jeremy did was he came to town and I remember he's, he, he, he kind of want, I took him around my neighborhood, my school, which is also in the movie outside where the kids are walking. That's my public school. And um, he didn't meet my father, but my daughter, Georgie, who's actually here, uh, there you are, Georgie. And, and my wife and two boys and I, we took my father out for lunch at his favorite place, which was the Finnegan's Wake Pub in upper, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which used to be a place where I used to go because you could, you know, you get a drink and you'd be like 15, you know, they'd give you a drink. Anyway, so I knew it from that. And he went there because they have very good steak fries. They're very thick. Anyway, and Jeremy Strong said, when you go see him, video him doing the Proust questionnaire. So they did. And we, Georgie did it, right? You photographed it. And then we texted it to Jeremy and he must have memorized it or something. But it is good. It got, I didn't want to give him. also the voice too. Like even the, I mean, He got again, the voice. Yeah. He got the whole thing. I, what I did not want to do was have him do like of a course. Rich Little impersonation or something. Not that there's anything wrong with Rich Little. He has a very nice place in the world, but <laughs> that's not what I wanted. So, you know, Annie too, they were both trying to get all the pictures they could and all the, because Annie kept saying, don't you have any footage of your mother? Which I didn't, thank God. But I didn't want that. And yet, the less I gave them, it didn't seem to matter. There's one thing where the car pulls up after Tony Hopkins' character's funeral. It just was written that they get out and they walk back to the house. So as these things go, you love it. Take one, so, you know, the car pulls up and Jeremy gets out and he goes, lock the doors, which is something my dad said every single <laughs> time we got out of the goddamn car, which was, yes, a Plymouth Belvedere station wagon. And I, I don't understand how he knew that. And I said to him, how did you know to say that? He said, that's what I would say. Lock the doors. I care about my car. Lock the door. And he had the hat and the jacket, the whole thing. So some of it was I did tell him, but a lot of it he intuited from the Proust questionnaire, and a lot of it he used, frankly, basing it on someone. You know, he spent a lot of his teenage years in Flushing in his, I think it was his grandfather's basement, and um, knew all the locations, used to go to Jewel Avenue Delicatessen, which was right near me and all of that, and he knew all those places already. Annie is from Brooklyn. She kind of had a clear awareness of New York. Um, so it was, it, it wasn't a lot of, it wasn't a lot of, uh, filling in the blanks that I ha even had to do. 
they somehow intuited the things about those people anyway. And I, I did tell Annie, of, of course, I did tell Annie, I said, you don't have to use this. But she said, what happened to your mother? I said, well, she died not too long after this of brain cancer. She said, oh, okay. And then, you know, as these things happened, she kept improvising, you know, this thing. She kept saying, my head, my head, which you see in the movie. And it's not, you're not supposed to know what it actually is, but she used it, you know, this mm -hmm. idea of a person put upon that, that there was like a, the weight of the family was like a, almost like a burden on her shoulders. And she was trying to reach out for love from Jeremy or Jeremy's character and didn't quite get it. But all of that is totally consistent with the dynamic in my own house, household. I thought that was maybe even, because your, your mother died of a brain tumor, that was it, that there was maybe even a seeding of that idea or that you were leading uh, that, into. That totally, in, uh, yeah, I w that's what she was doing. I mean, we were uh, not... Not because I, I, you know, it's like I wanted it to continue on through that, but because it was part of who she was, you know, that she had a, I always felt that that illness and death was a physical manifestation of really the daily struggle that they felt to survive. And it's particularly in the late 70s. Um, I remember going with my mother to a, a supermarket, the name of the chain of which I love. I, so I'm going to say it. It was called Wallbaums. Sure. In New York. Yeah. And we went to Wallbaums and we were in line and uh, I didn't recognize the money that my mother was, was using to pay for the groceries. I said, what, is, what kind of money is that? And my mother went, stop it. Stop it right now. Stop it. Because it was food assistance program. It was food stamps. And she didn't want me to know about that. That was we, – we, the family's uh, financial status, my family's financial status, had recovered a bit by 1980. Not wholly but a bit. And that struggle to make ends meet, I think, informed a lot of their neglect, frankly, of my brother and me, because their attitude, of course, was like, you know, take the subway and all that. Just get get out of my face. I have to figure out how to deal with with life. And you know, my father's behavior towards me in the bathroom in that scene—that's an act of of ineptitude. That's the father basically saying, "I don't know what to do." I don't know how to handle this Desperation. Kid. Desperation. The kid is out of control. He's smoking a joint in public school. What do we do? How do we corral this? How do we, he's willful. What do we do? Um, so all of that went into the soup. Anyway, I don't even know why I'm talking about this. But. <laughs> and, and then I don't, I mean, for people who don't know me, because I think obviously when you take something that autobiographical, then there are details and then you wonder, okay, in terms of the context, what is invented or not. But even... Even the Trump aspect of the story, Marianne Trump, Fred Trump, all true. Not this is not some this is not an invention. Something like no, made, put not an comment, invention, right? Not so that was, an invention. In fact, you told me a story about how you actually um, wrote the speech of Marianne Trump and talking to your brother. And, and well, what happened was I said to him, I said, I'm going to put her speech into the movie. I said, so I first tried to find a transcript or something like that from the school. They didn't have it. They were not very cooperative, you can imagine. I couldn't even call it the same name. I said, Ed, write down the speech as best you can remember it. I'll do the same. We'll compare notes. We're exactly the same. So it leads me to believe it's pretty accurate because we hadn't talked about it. And I remember even as a 12-year-old, she came to the school. She gave a, you know, the Ann Richards, governor of Texas, uh, former governor of Texas, she's dead now. But she, she, uh, she gave this... Uh, comments about George W. Bush in 2000. She said, born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. And that, that, that's like what she, the speech that she gave. And I remember being like 12 and listening to this woman talk about how hard she had had it. And 
uh, I remember even then thinking, what are you talking about, lady? You're worth like $400 million. What do you, what do you mean? Now, of course, we can see in some tiny, maybe sliver of a way, her being a woman in a man's world, I can kind of sort of weirdly see it. But it is the ultimate, like, I'm in my own ideological box and I can't look outside of that at all. Now, none of us really can escape from our own box. But that is really blind, beyond comprehension. And with Fred, I mean, that was just, I must have looked very strange. I had my hair plastered down with dippity-doo hair gel and I had my father's given me that attache case, just like in the movie, class I won, attache case. So I went in and he just, what's your name? What's your parents' name? What, what, what's the name? Greiserstein? So, I mean, he sent a very clear message, of course. And I knew even then, you know, very anti-Semitic message. But I always thought that was interesting for the movie because Tony, uh, who was a, a beautiful um, character uh, to me, like my grandfather, but there is tremendous cognitive dissonance because the, the grandfather says, I told your parents to do that. I He's the one who wanted you to go. Wanted me to go there. He yeah. paid for it. They were both school teachers in the public school system, but had invested decently and made a, not a lot, but a fair amount of money to live a kind of middle to upper middle class existence, then wound up ironically losing all of it. But for about a four-year period, they helped my parents out financially a, a bit. And that was that period when, they, when we went to the, the private school. And I remember he said, oh, I told your parents to do that. Your name is Graf. You can fit in. It's a better name. System's rigged. Then next scene you see him, be a, be a match, be a good guy. Say something, but fit in. Because your name is Graf, it's good, you can fit in. But be a good guy. That's, that's the person who inculcated me the most on the ways of the world. And that itself is even this terrible cognitive dissonance. He encouraged you to be an artist, yeah? Well, he didn't encourage it. I think he thought... The way I look at it now, he didn't discourage it, and I think he was humoring me, maybe because he thought by the time I'm 18 or 19, I'll, I'll get some sense into me and Wall Street will be beckoning or something. I don't know what he thought. But he used to say, he used to say, oh, the great artists sign their work. You just sign your work. You know, I put it in the movies, all that stuff. And he would bring these little sucking candies around. He'd say, don't tell your mother I'm giving you these sucking candies. All the stuff that's in the movies, wearing my grandfather's hat, and my grandfather's tie, which we had. And um, that he was, but he was very important to me because he said, you know, the one thing you can do is really with children, uh, they say you only need to be good enough uh, as parents or grandparents. And I think he told my brother and me that we were wanted and loved. And that was enough. That was enough for my brother and me to, to, to make it. My parents, you know, people think children have uh, moral and ethical moorings that come from thin air or from the sky. It used to be actually, obviously, were, they were taught by religion, right? Or the, the metaphors in the Old Testament or New Testament, whatever, that you were taught, uh, you know, through a parable how to, how to behave in the world. Conveniently, of course, skipping some passages where people are stoned to death in the Bible. But that will let that aside. That, but, but nothing really has filled the hole of religion as we, I'm not a religious person, so I don't think religion is necessarily the answer in this way. But, I was not given a, as we call it, a moral or ethical foundation by my parents. I just wasn't. It was like, go on the subway, leave me alone. I was riding the subway by myself, really by age 11. 
which in the late 70s, early 80s, seems like an act of insanity by my parents. Ironically, it's much safer today, and I would never let Georgia ride it by herself. And it was funny because when we took over the subway, we shot that it was a, a, an unused station on Bleecker Street in New York. And they, we, got, we had a two-minute run on the train, and we got this vintage 1976 subway train. It was absolutely immaculate. It was clean. So I said, well, this is, this is I got to tell you, this is crap. And the MTA guy goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, I never was on a train in my life in that era that didn't get covered with graffiti. He said, the New York MTA does not uh, condone graffiti. I said, no, no, I understand that. I said, but this is history. He said, we will not allow you to uh, demarcate the train in any way. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, but we're going to put the graffiti on the tracing paper and put it on. No, you cannot demarcate. They kept saying demarcate, which is not the right <laughs> word. So I kept saying, all right, well, I appreciate that, but, uh, you know, okay. And, of course, I'm sitting there the whole time, and I'm like, I'm like going up to this guy I know who's the visual effects guy. I'm like, get the markers, get the markers. You know, I, I know that we're going to add all that in post, which was a huge drag. You demarcated in, in, I in demarc post? I demarcated yeah. the whole train in yeah. post. <laughs> and so all that graffiti, of course, is CG and added later. But it was important because... That was the environment in which I rode the subway with my friend. And, you know, it was like, it's like sent a message like the, the city's out of control. That's the way it felt. And your, your relationship, the relationship between Paul and Johnny, you, you had a friend. who This, this, this is sure also did. very autobiographical, this part. Yeah, yeah my, father's, my father had built in some weird spasmodic rage of generosity and, and love built a clubhouse for us, just like this, in the backyard. It was actually a little bit smaller in reality. We couldn't get the camera in there. It was actually built to size, but very similar to what you see. And um, at some point, he just started staying in there. We started finding things. It was very uh, upsetting to me now if I think about how really desperate he was to do that. But it's funny, you know, we talk about in life, we talk, and I'm sure you guys deal with this stuff all the time, you know, active characters or passive characters or what you call agency or whatever the term is now. And, you know, really when a 12-year-old is in the world, I know I thought I had lots of agency because I would ride the subway by myself, but you really have very little. And he clearly had done what he could. I know that his mother, again, now with distance, his grandmother – had Alzheimer's disease. I mean, this is very clear to me now at the time. You know, she's just losing her mind. You know, the, the, you know Johnny's grandmother's losing her mind. Like, that was the way you processed it. And yes, all of that stuff is, uh, is, from, is from life. And so what made you want to tell this story now? What was well, as you know, Matt, you write these things and then years later they get made. So the thing was written many years ago, several years ago. Um, when did you write it? I started it in 2018. Uh, finished it in 2019, which is so weird because before, of course, you know, January 6th and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the whole idea of democracy itself really being frankly at risk, which is sadly what we face now and, and Tuesday is coming. But um, I, I think that what happened was I, I, I was coming off two very difficult movies in a row, which you know, I mean, I was physically... I was really drained after making a movie I did called Lost City of Z, which is was a, a large portion of it was Amazonia. A lot, even the part that was UK was very difficult, particularly a World War I sequence in the mud. So I was physically exhausted. You know, Jew in the jungle doesn't always work out. 
a lot of pictures that you sent me of you in, a, in like a beekeeper's outfit. Yeah, I looked yeah. like Moses dressed up as a beekeeper. It was quite intriguing. But I, I'm not that I'm, I mean, I'm very uh, happy I made the film. It was an incredible experience for my family and me. We went down there. It was incredible. And the, the, the indigenous peoples of Amazonia, that's like one of the great, amazing experiences of my life, encountering them and working with them. So I'm happy I made it, but it was physically, I mean, I was beat. And then I went into this space movie with Brad Pitt where he's in a box on wires, you know, like take 17, do I have to move this way? And then the, the post was very difficult on it. And I, I, I had to reinvent my love of the medium of cinema and find why I wanted to do it in the first place. And of course, you know, I used to tell them, kids stories all the time at night, right? I don't do it anymore. You're too cool for school. You don't care. But um, they used to love it. We went back to the, see the old house, which you see in the picture. And uh, it was really, you know, you had this experience. You ever go back and see it. It's like, oh, my God, it's so small. It's like it was tiny. And like the back alley where we played stickball. And the, I was like, wait, did I have a games of stickball? The bases, they were only 12 feet apart, like weird. I mean, that must have been an amazing experience to take a film crew back and essentially insane. to be filming in your neighborhood where you grew up. Insane. Yeah. I mean, the last scene in the car between the, you know, Banks and, and Jeremy, where Jeremy basically says, you know, life is not fair and, you know, you have to eat it basically, which I think is a terrible thing to tell the kid, but whatever. I've had some people say to me, that's really good. He gives them a lesson. I find it <laughs> horrifying, but okay. Yeah. Um, I remember that night, it was the third night we had been there. First two nights were, first two days, very calm. The third night, all of a sudden, all this crowd is around and all these people like, Jimmy, I babysit a few in 1978. Like word had gotten out and all these people I hadn't seen in 45 years were like coming out of the woodwork. It was amazing. And like Mildred is 91. She still lives over there, you know. And I was like, oh my God. It was kind of amazing. And, you know, it formed a certain production crisis because it was like COVID and, you know, 50,000 COVID people, you know, officials are coming out going, you're not appropriately attired, ma'am. Like all this kind of thing. But... It was, uh, Jeremy loved it. You know, Jeremy fed off it. He would say, this is amazing. It's your neighborhood. And he would go around. He would take Instamatic photos, I remember, of my house and say, I'm going to do this on film and get it developed. And there was one, there was a fence that my father had built around the garbage cans because- I remember that. Yeah, he wanted to protect all the wildlife of Queens from getting at the garbage. (laughs) And it had like a regal G in it, which was insane. It was like- if you knew where I was and seeing this crazy G that he, like, I don't know, he thought, this is nice. It's going to prove that we're kings of our castle or whatever. Um, he, he loved that gate, Jeremy. He kept studying it and it was off its hinges. He kept pulling it and going, see, it's broken, but there's still evidence you were here. It's broken, but there's evidence. I said, right, calm down. That's fine. But I, I, but I felt it very sad, melancholy, really, because I realized that everybody except for my brother now, thank heavens, is dead. And all of those Im- incredibly important meals, which had such consequence, and all those, the, the, my great aunt, great uncle coming over, we're going to have a serious discussion now, the big deal, we had the bagels and locks on Sunday where I would rebel and eat the waffle. All gone. No evidence of them living there anymore, really, except for this G off its hinges. Maybe a little bit of paint on the wall from my model rockets. I think there was that too, right? 
But other than that, no evidence. And you realize like it's pretty ephemeral and we're here for a very short time. And now these people are like, you know, memories in my head, just dancing around like fireflies at night, you know, and it's getting a little dimmer. I have very difficult time remembering my mother in a healthy state. And um, it's melancholy, but it is also that sadness is part of what makes our lives very beautiful. Because if we live forever, it wouldn't have any meaning, right? Live forever. This is, yeah, 2,903 of my life. Uh, I guess I'm going to get a salad. You know what I mean? At some point, it would be pretty horrible. So that ephemerality is what gives our lives beauty. I think. I feel that way anyway. I mean, I think that's the, that, to me, that's why we like why we respond so emotionally to movies with the beginning, middle, end. Everything's like a life cycle. Uh, yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. why, look, uh, uh, TV can be magnificent. Uh, I've certainly, I've been blown away by many things I've seen. But there's an issue with the architecture, I find, which is that in a movie, it replicates in some weird way that birth, life, death cycle. Uh, because you, it's almost like you can... It's encapsulated in a very suave way. Like, it's very interesting. We watched, um, uh, the other night I watched, I watch an old movie if I can, uh, every night if I'm not traveling or something. The other night I watched Barbara Stanwyck movie, um, which is called, which was called Jeopardy with Ralph Meeker, directed by John Sturges. And I'm watching this movie and it's 67 minutes long. And it was very intriguing and it had some great aspects in the story, but it was only 67 minutes and it wasn't really that great because there was huge swaths of the narrative which were good, interesting, but weren't developed enough. But if Jeopardy had been 140 minutes, you would have likely said, one would have likely said, that's too long. And weirdly, something happened between, and it's unlike any other art form, right? If I said to you, painting, the, the cave paintings of Lascaux are 38,000 years ago or something, they think. And 1480 or 1490 is perspective and chiaroscuro. So it takes all those thousands and thousands of years to develop into, that, into the art form we know of, you know, getting more and more realistic, if whatever that's worth, and then going abstract. Cinema, sound cinema, 1927, full length, first full length is 28. They say jazz singer, but that's not really... So first one is 28. By 1932-33, you have an ocean of masterpieces and you have run times that settle in between about 90 and 120 minutes. Tells you we needed it. It's like a dream, right? That's there. We, it's our dream. It's been captured somehow. And the fullness of that experience, we have not figured out how to replicate that in any other art form, I think. You know, you look at um, the triptych by Bosch, if, if you're lucky enough to see it, at, at the Prado, and you see that he was reaching for something beyond painting. He was trying. He, was, he put three of them together. He was trying to do something. And if you see Das Nibelungen by Wagner, he's trying. He's trying to step outside the realm of opera. He's trying to make a movie. It just didn't, didn't happen for him yet. Would have been a great director maybe, maybe a fascist director, but okay, but great director. <laughs> and uh, that's the beauty of the form, and I think you're right. I think it's about the way that it beautifully replicates a dream of, of our life cycle. You know, what, what 
Joseph Campbell called of, the of cosmogonic at, cycle. Of loss at the end too. Like it's, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah no, I, I wrote it on the camera. So we, four words, warmth, humor, love, and loss. And I said, you guys, if we're ever lost, we just, we look at these four words and we know that that's the thread of what it is we're trying to communicate. And this why the kid walks away from the school and you see those empty rooms, the, I, which I stole from a great movie called The Garden of the Fisicantinis by Vittorio De Sica. Mm-hmm. I stole the ending. That's that empty rooms thing. Um, and you, 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 I was trying to say these spaces were inhabited once by people and now they're no longer and, and maybe these places won't be there forever and they won't be. So it's all ephemeral. And uh, that's part of the key of why I think a memoir can be beautiful and can, can if it does work. And of course, uh, we didn't even get into any of the politics behind the film, but that's okay because uh, certainly that was secondary to all of these concerns anyway. I could keep. I know they're telling, telling us, us we got to go. I, I could keep talking He's to you. He's got sign. He's friend. got a sign. <laughs> yes. He held Please it up. Please rap. Please rap is um, the sign. I don't know how to rap. Um, my I don't friend. know how to rap presents either. I love him. <laughs> he, by the way, this is a great man. You should just this know that. This is a great okay? man and a wonderful Thank filmmaker. Thank you so much. And thank you, guys. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 